Hi, I'm Brian McCreeth, and this is The Answered Question from WCRB in Boston for September 29, 2017. Paul Lewis is the pianist in this recording of Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto with the BBC Symphony and the late conductor Jerzy Bielolovic. It's the piece Lewis is playing this weekend with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. WCRB will have Saturday's concert for you live on the air beginning at 8 p.m. This week on The Answered Question, you'll hear from Paul Lewis about Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto, and you'll hear from BSO Music Director Andres Nelsons about the other work on the program, Shostakovich's Symphony No. 11, called The Year 1905. Also on the podcast are conversations with pianist David DeVoe, who just stepped down from his position as Artistic Director of the Rockport Chamber Music Festival, and his successor in that job, violist Barry Schiffman. You can hear the two of them with their colleagues in music by Beethoven and Dvorak this Sunday on WCRB in concert with Rockport Music. For more about the program and to see upcoming concerts by the BSO and from Rockport Music, check out our website at classicalwcrb.org. I think the project that put Paul Lewis on the map internationally was his complete Beethoven sonatas recordings on the Harmonia Mundi label. It's as beautiful, graceful, insightful, and thoughtful as any I know, and it turns out the complete set has just been re-released in a single-box set. After his first concert with the BSO at Tanglewood in 2012, he pretty quickly became a regular guest artist with the orchestra, and his relationship with them became so close that a couple of years ago when the BSO replaced its two Steinway concert pianos at Symphony Hall, they asked Paul Lewis to choose the specific instruments. Well, when I met him after a rehearsal earlier this week at the hall, we talked about Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto. And by the way, for this interview, I dropped in a bit of the music at one point, just for context. But first I asked Lewis which of the five Beethoven Piano Concertos was the one he performed first. As a player, oh, let me see. Actually, it was this now. The fourth. It was the fourth, yeah. I I learned it quite early on at college. I was probably 18 um, and played it quite soon after that. In fact, I remember now, my, my first performance was in the final of a piano competition in the UK, and it was with Peter Donohoe conducting, the pianist Peter Donohoe. Um, and that was, that was fun. So that was, that was my first Beethoven four. And so um, it, it, was that the first one you came to as a player because you, by that time, you had known them all from recordings for sure, and maybe even practiced some of them, but was it the fourth, because um, it was the one you really wanted to do the most? Well, I, I don't really remember. Although the fourth is, uh, of, of the five concertos, the fourth is the most unusual and fragile. And you know, there's a very delicate balance in the fourth that you have to strike. It's, it's, for me, the most difficult. I mean, pianistically, it's the most difficult, but, but also musically, you know, just finding that balance. And to, in order to find that balance, you have to have a, a partnership that, that works um, and and it doesn't always, but in this case it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's that's one of the things, especially listening to you in, in rehearsal, and, and, and I have to say that just personally, this is like my favorite concerto of any kind of concerto. I just absolutely love this concerto, and part of it is that second movement. It's the emotional core of the piece, I think. Everything kind of comes to that and goes away from that. 
but there are so many ways to do it. And, and I wonder, um, as someone who plays it with lots of orchestras and has over the years, do you ever find yourself um, needing to bend what you believe or feel about that movement in order to work with a particular conductor who might have a different idea about it? I think that's true of anything you play. Um, sometimes it's problematic and sometimes it's not. You know, so, sometimes you just feel that you're, you're learning all, something for, from a particular orchestra or, or conductor, and that's, that's really what it's about. You know, uh, when, you, when you feel that you have to completely change your, your concept, then it's, yeah, it's not so fun. But with that movement, it's, it's more a question really of tempo. You know, it's, it's andante, and sometimes it goes way too slow, uh, and that, that can be a, a problem, because uh, in the, the, the piano sections, when the piano plays, it has to have a line, it has to, to flow, and if it's too slow, then it just gets, gets stuck. Um, but yeah, it's nice that we do it in a, in a proper andante tempo. And, and I've also heard it maybe pushed a little bit, kind of I, at, at times, maybe it's just the first recordings I heard or the first performances, but it, it feels sometimes like some people want to move it along a little quicker than I'm ready for. Does that happen to you? Yeah, it, it shouldn't drive. I mean, that, that's the thing. It, it should be, uh, it, it should have the, the, the strength of character that, that it needs. And I think the tempo is very important. There's, there's not too much lee leeway in the tempo in this movement. Yeah, if it's too fast and it feels too directional, then, then it, I think it loses its character. And so that's when you say it's the, the maybe the most difficult um, interpretively, I think is maybe how we would put it, what you just said. Um, but you also said pianistically. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that, that technically just like getting your fingers wrapped around it is harder than the other Beethoven concertos? Yeah, absolutely, and it and it doesn't sound like it at all. No. Um, in <laughs> fact, you know the the third and the fifth. I mean, the, the fifth probably sounds almost the most difficult. The the first is very tricky. The last move of the first, the C major, is tricky, um, and as as are passages in the in the second. But but the fourth is you know sometimes you feel like you're just playing on eggshells. You know you feel feels very. You feel very precarious. It doesn't lie under the fingers um, quite as well as as the others, and you have to play with such delicacy, and uh, it, it's it's difficult. Uh, I think in that sense, a good piano helps you. I think when you when you feel that you're battling against the piano, then it becomes pianistically even more difficult. Sadly, and here in Boston, <laughs> we have the <laughs> yeah. we have the luxury of you having chosen the piano Simon. that uh, is is now actually both pianos that are that are most often used the New York and the Hamburg Steinways here at Symphony Hall. Yeah, so I'm not going to complain about no, it. Don't complain. <laughs> <laughs> So um, when we talked last, um, it was the summer before last at, at Tanglewood, and you were telling me about the program you were developing, a recital program that combined Haydn, Beethoven, and Brahms. And, um, and so I wonder, maybe, I don't know if this would apply to the concertos, um, how much overlap there would be with the sonatas and like the bagatelles that you, you include in this program. But when you, when you put these composers together in, in the kind of intensity that you, you do for a recital program that you're taking to lots and lots of different places, does something change about how you're hearing Beethoven that would filter into how you're maybe looking at parts of the fourth piano concerto? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's inevitable, yeah. you know, because when you, especially when you play recitals and you're, you're um, 
putting Beethoven alongside Haydn or, or Brahms. Of course, everything sheds a certain light on everything else. It sort of highlights different things, and you begin to see things in a different balance. And inevitably, you come away from that, and you, you know, you come to fourth piano concerto or whatever, and and you do see it differently. I think it happens all the time, but but it's it should happen like that because it you know it it shouldn't stay stuck anywhere. It's it's got to constantly move. I mean that that's. Uh, that's a musician's life. You know, it's it's always it, it's alive. It's it should always be changing. You know, you should always be discovering things, and and that's what I love about it. Really. Well, and and I I guess that's yeah, that's how I think about listening too. That when we hear the fourth piano concerto, I've heard I don't know how many times I've heard the fourth piano concerto, hundreds of times probably, but it, it's the moment in which I hear it at the, when I'm hearing it that that matters. And I guess that would be the same that in the midst of a, of um, really being deeply involved with Haydn and Brahms, if that has some effect on Beethoven, cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, it's actually why I put Beethoven in that series with the Haydn and the Brahms, because uh, you have the, the quirkishness and the humor of Haydn on the one side and the, the deep seriousness of expression of Brahms on the other. And really, the, the Beethoven bagatelles and the Diabelli variations look, they, they cover all that. They look in all those directions. And that's what I wanted to, to illustrate in a way that sort of Beethoven glues these two composers together. Paul Lewis, thanks a lot for taking some time to talk with me today. Thank you very much. Paul Lewis is the soloist in this week's Boston Symphony Orchestra program with the Piano Concerto No. 4 by Beethoven. It's one of two pieces on the program, the other being the Symphony No. 11 by Shostakovich, which is being performed by the BSO for the very first time in the orchestra's history. The title Shostakovich gave the piece is The Year 1905, and it's an almost blow-by-blow musical depiction of an uprising in Russia that was crushed by the Tsarist government. It's an important point because when Shostakovich wrote the piece in 1957, the Soviet government had just crushed an uprising in Hungary about a year before. Musically, Shostakovich uses a series of revolutionary folk songs throughout the symphony, and they're songs just about everyone in the Soviet audience in the 1950s would have recognized. So when I talked with Andres Nelsons about the piece, I asked him whether it makes a difference that we, in this country, in this time, won't know those songs. I always have, I think, Two, two opinions or two, two perspectives. I mean, one is that, I mean, Shostakovich really very often is over-politicized and, and I think his music is independently genius. He was a genius composer independently from, from, the, you know, from a political situation. And when we listen to either symphonies or chamber music or ballet or, or, or film, film music or theater, it's, it's, you, can, you can hear it's written by a genius composer who really knows how to write and who has a lot of ideas. And, but from the other side, of course, you cannot, I think, ignore the, the time he lived. Because if you, if you know that time, then you understand that it, is, it goes together, both the sides. You cannot try to pretend that, oh, okay, Stalin, okay, Hitler, well, doesn't matter, it's, it's, it's joyful. No, no, it's not. not right, you, know, you can't ignore it. It's you can't, you yeah. can't ignore it. And I think Shostakovich, uh, being a genius composer, he also chose to take an active part in his opinion and protest against dictatorship. Sure. Not, Dictatorship is one thing against the violence, and uh, because 
you know, I, th- I think that it's not a dictatorship. What he, I think it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, vi- it's a violence and a, and a disaster what happened, killing your your own people, sending to Siberia and so on. So you can always, you know, as he did use the double or triple meanings or whatever, the metaphors, you, you, you know, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to exactly say what he meant and he, and, sure. and people could use it uh, the way they wanted in a way and they, they thought it would, uh, and that's how he also fooled very often with his symphonies and his pieces, the, the party and, you know, so from that sense, of course, people who have lived in Soviet Union or who know not only have lived, but historically know what what really happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe the uh, the drama and the dramatism of that of of his symphonies. Uh, let's say also in the eleventh, uh, at first, talks more more dramatic as maybe it would be for people who let's say who don't know the background. It is nineteen oh five revolution, which is. It's just cold, and and obviously that these were the very very disastrous events where you know again people came into the you know to the palace without weapons, but then and they, they and then they were killed, you know, and this is absolute disaster. And that, and and uh, he is using and he's telling that he's using the quotations of the army, old army songs of old soldiers, uh, the quotations and. And that you can actually hear when it's played by flutes and then it's played by, by cellos and con- double basses and then and uh, you you hear that this is it reminds you of, of a song of a soldiers and it a little bit reminds of interestingly enough although it's a quotation it reminds a little bit of Mahler as well which is always a par- par- parallel of, of the yeah and of course, there is a also funeral march and team pom pom which is very very dramatic and and of course you can associate at the first sight associate with 1905, but but to me it's it finds two. I I think this symphony is the most one of the most dramatic and actually pessimistic symphonies of, of all because I think the end of the symphony you, you actually uh, you there is not really a moment of of hope or of a clear of the clear sky I clear skies anywhere it's really very dark and, and even if these Violas played. It's a monotone song, but it's very. So there is no. It's like mourning, lamenting about uh, about. And and. Uh, and I think therefore it feels too actual, too too. It, it it feels too far, nineteen oh five and then fifty seven, when it, you know, when it was written. When it was written. So, yeah. and of course we know that we know the the facts what happened in Hungary in fifty six. So, I think they. I find I think there is a parallel also to that, and and why it's so pessimistic maybe because. Stalin is dead, so you would think. 
life should be. But no, things are going, you know, look, look to Hungary, look to... It's... I was fighting all the time with this disastrous Stalin. Not, I, I, you know, not, not, not literally, but yeah. I think the feeling, you know, of Shostakovich, I think, in each symphony, it, you feel the, 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 the tension and you feel the f there's a very active resistance, an active feeling for hope, for for victory, or for, in spite of everything, everything will be fine. I mean, each symphony gives that at some point, but here it's not, it's just monotone, and then it's so dramatic, like bombing. It ends, you, 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 feel, you think, oh my God, you know, it's not, it, you don't. You, there's no. Doesn't give you space to breathe. It's, it gives you space to to cry, lament, but no place to. In this in this symphony, and, and therefore I think it's, from one side I think it's because of. Yeah, of course I think it's a realization of, yeah, the evil is always is a part of life that the, even. You think you conquer you you. you deal with something and, and you think the evil is away but it's not and uh, i think that disappoints you so much that and of course he and then i think he uses it as a metaphor this revolution and then and i think he simply looks back in the history where such things happen and what happened in hungary and then what happened in you know in this revolution and then what happens after stalin's death things doesn't get better really and and this is very scary uh, what uh, for example not performing this symphony to me personally it's looking in the you know what happens now in the world and you kind of think oh we had we have fight one one um, one terror or one but it's and we think that's oh that's the end and no it's not and it's it's so it's really disappointing in certain. I think that's what just I think I find that Shostakovich felt so yeah. disappointment. You think you and and a kind of uh, hopeless feeling that uh, that you cannot help, you cannot do anything. It's just I can't really influence. Andres Nelsons leads the BSO in Shostakovich's Symphony Number no. Eleven, the year 1905. Tomorrow night in our live Boston Symphony Orchestra broadcast, beginning at 8 p.m. This Sunday night on WCRB in concert, Alan McClellan brings you performances from the Rockport Chamber Music Festival, featuring pianist David DeVoe, who ended a 22-year tenure as the artistic director of the festival, and the person who's taking over that job, violist Barry Schiffman. Chris Voss talked with Schiffman, and that conversation is coming up. First, though, here's Alan McClellan with David DeVoe. David, um, stepping down after 22 years, that's, that's a, a, a lot of years, and a lot of changes happened. Um, why did you want to step down? I think it's funny. I ask myself that on an almost daily basis because it's, Rockport has been such a central part of my musical life and my personal life, too. It's a place where friendships are very easily made. Um, I think the the principal reason is that I wanted to make sure that I did not overstay. And um, I've mentioned this in a couple of other uh, media outlets, but I, I heard several years ago uh, Esa Pekka Salonen 
being interviewed when he announced he was leaving the Los Angeles Philharmonic before Dudamel uh, arrived. And he said, well, very simply, I want to go out on top. And I, I want more time for my own artistic pursuits. But in his case, it's composition. And in my case, it's playing the piano and hopefully making more recordings. And I just felt like uh, that the, the, the whole operation at Rockport Music is sailing now so smoothly and uh, sort of seamlessly blending the classical repertoire, which we're known for, with all the, the other music that people love, the Celtic folk music. Um, uh, we've had Brian O'Donovan there a number of times. We've had pop singers like Paula Cole. All of these uh, very different sorts of, of musics that I actually do not uh, program because uh, I'm strictly classical. But um, the operation is now huge. I mean, when I started in 95, it was a $230,000 budget. It's now approaching $4 million. So Yeah, I wanted to ask you about all the changes that have yep. happened. I mean, because w when you started, it was not you that began the festival. No. It was uh, Lila, Lila Dice, uh, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Um, uh, she was a, a very uh, fine soprano from New York. And her, her frequent accompanist, David Alfer, uh, was the other co-founder. And he was a composer and a pianist. And um, so they began the whole thing in 1982. Um, and in 1995, I came on as, as the sole artistic director. And uh, if anybody had said that I would still be there 22 years later, I, I probably would have just said, wow, you know. But the time went in a blink. I, I would have to say that clearly the, the whole history of the organization is sort of uh, pre-Shalin Lu Performance Center and post and the, the Performance Center was something that um, had been a dream of mine right from the get-go because I felt that the former venue we had our concerts in was charming but very limited. Yeah, it was it, the, the physical space was a huge limitation. It so, was. So you came to a, a realization early on probably that you needed, needed something new. But Yes, but you know, it took, it took yeah. a while because we didn't really start looking at uh, real estate in earnest until about 2005. But the erection of this building was what I call a love of labor because we had endless meetings. I mean, there were just, you know, meetings with the town government, meetings with the historical society, uh, endless meetings with our architects and acoustical engineers. And so the whole process uh, was, you know, five years in the making. But when we opened in 2010, I think there was this collective sigh of, of uh, great satisfaction. Yeah, I could imagine just because, uh, you know, at, for a musician to, uh, to have to be engaging in so much uh, kind of political business kind of activity, well, it's, it's it, hard. Absolutely. And, and I must uh, sort of downplay my own role in the, the you know, sort of the governmental aspects, because I didn't get, get into that. We had trustees that were, you know, just really well-versed in bylaws and, uh, you know, and knew how to work with town governments in order to get something like this done, which in New England is not easy because people are very reluctant to see change. And I remember when the building was being constructed, I was there with my then quite young son, 
you know, looking it over, and the, this cranky old guy, it must have been about 80, he was just standing looking at the construction. He said, I think this is terrible. And and I, I didn't tell him who I was or anything. I just said, why is that? And he said, we don't need this here. Unnecessary. It's just going to clog up traffic even more than it is. And so my son was watching this, and he he was wanting me to sort of, you know, stick up for the, the Enterprise. And I just said, yeah, really, it's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, uh, and it turns out I asked the guy where he was from, and he said Belmont. So, you know, it wasn't even like he had a, a he wasn't even in the race. that local, you know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So before, um, before Shaolin Lu, and after Shaolin Lu were yes. completely different worlds in, in some respects. Yes. Can you talk about how it changed, what was different? Well, sure. The uh, First of all, the number of seats grew, not as much as we had hoped uh, because of the just the limitations of the, the land and the space. So we went from 240 seats to 330. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to keep uh, from our... Uh, previous venue was a real sense of audience connection to the stage and if you recall the original uh, setup at the art association was sort of a horseshoe around a, a slight slightly raised platform so virtually everybody felt they were practically on the stage with us and and that was something that was very attractive uh, to the audience and so when we were working with the architects uh, we wanted to somehow still uh, maintain a sense of enveloping the stage w with the audience. And so th the way we achieve that is actually to have um, uh, the loge seats go right up to the stage and the balcony seats uh, actually go over the stage and right, you know, to the, like, to the back of the wall. So the people who are seated up there are able to look straight down and they they can see what everybody's doing, and it's very immediate. Can read the music over their shoulders. Uh, probably, probably yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so and they can also, if we're boring them, they can look out the window and, and enjoy yeah, the ocean. Yeah, so. the, the um, I guess not not every listener will have heard about the 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 amazing view at the back of the stage yes. of the Shaolin Lu Performance Center. Yeah, it's a, a very large window, uh, floor to ceiling, and the seascape is. Um, Sandy Bay in Rockport. And um, so as we perform the concerts, most of the time it's in evening and the sun is setting and it's just absolutely just beautiful. Um, so, we, you know, it, I think we realize pretty much all of our intentions with this space. It is being used not only by us for 130 events a year, but by renters who do recordings there. Uh, there are weddings that happen in the reception hall. Um, so it's been a real boon to the economy of, of Rockport. Yeah, and, and it's <clears throat> from my point of view, coming, recording, doing various uh, for many things for, for many years, it was a huge change and, and for, for the better. I mean, just yes. a, a, a wonderful facility. Well, to be honest, Alan, the, the, one of my main motivating uh, factors aside from the the smallness of the art association was that we were uh, on stage there with the lights and no air conditioning. We were like broiled chickens on stage, and and my my dream was air conditioning, air conditioning. And so we, when we constructed this building, 
um, in order to have completely silent HVAC systems, uh, it was just an incredibly expensive project, you know? But you can't hear a thing. When you're in there, it's cool, it's comfortable, or in the winter, it's warm and, and comfortable, but you don't hear any air movement of any kind. But one of the things that I was thinking that, that really hasn't changed is the the is the collegiality and the and the sense of um, shared music between the audience and the and the performers is that a conscious choice? What's well, their sh- conscious choice? I mean, the audience is uh, extremely uh, vocal in their um, you know uh, enthusiasm about what they hear, and I might say that they're also very vocal, not you know, by booing or anything, but after concerts they don't like, you know, I would hear from people. And and it was always fascinating to me what what sorts of things people might bring up. Uh, as one example, um, we had a violinist who uh, has gone on to really great things. I mean, he, he was quite a bit younger when this comment was made. But um, apparently people found his breathing while he was playing extremely bothersome because they could hear it and you know i mean he a lot of players do breathe almost like like a singer would or a wind player but anyway i I couldn't hear it but all these people were complaining afterwards and he has gone on to you know just a major international career you know so things like that really kind of come out of nowhere you you know, or people will complain about uh, shoes that certain artists will wear and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> squeaky shoes, squeaky or not polished well enough. Or, you know, I say, I'm, unfortunately, that's not in my job description to polish people's shoes. You know, but so. what what is in your job description is the is this uh, programming of yeah. of the or has been yes. uh, there's a programming of of the festival and um, that's. Uh, quite an art uh, it of is. its own. And h- how has that developed over the time? Well, uh, that's sort of a two, two-part answer. I would say that um, when I became artistic director, one of, the, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was sort of ensure high-quality performances. And one of the things that can contribute to... Um, variables in quality is putting together musicians who maybe don't usually play together like for a week prior to the concert and just you know uh, rehearse a lot and then hope for the best on the the day of the concert that is a lot of fun you know in in its in its own way but it does not always guarantee the kind of you know uh, polish and and real artistic um, sort of conviction. That you could say, hope for serendipity, but you might not get it. That's yeah. right. It, you may you may get something other than serendipity. And um, so my thought was to have established groups that play all year together as sort of the mainstays. Um, you know, and we did do a little mix and match in the early years, but but mostly I would have in uh, a lot of string quartets who were really seasoned, even though they were often young groups, um, you know, they played like 100 concerts a year together. And so I knew that, that we would be guaranteed of a, a real statement artistically. And it worked. Um, and again, in the, the early years, I had to prevail upon a lot of my friends in high places, both artists and managers, 
uh, to give us special deals because, you know, most of these people are used to commanding major fees. But the arithmetic doesn't work when you only have 240 seats. Exactly. Yeah. So I got by with a lot of help from my friends. I mean, we had all kinds of, uh, you know, very big name people early on, like Garrick Olson, uh, John Browning, um, Charles Rosen. I mean, there were a lot of folks that uh, that came to play for much less than they normally would um, because they liked the enterprise. They liked what we were doing, and they love our audience. Um, so once we got into the bigger space, you know, all the managers sort of called me at once and said, well, now we can talk real fees, you know, because the arithmetic is better. I said, well, it's not that better. I mean, you know, it's 330 seats as opposed to 240. So you can do the math. Uh, and they did. And, you know, uh, we got closer and closer as, as my tenure came to an end uh, to paying people what they were used to getting paid. So the, um, the idea of the um, intimacy and the, and the connection with the audience and the, and the idea of doing chamber music in that kind of setting was, was attractive enough. People weren't even weren't insisting on their, their entire fee. No. Yeah. no. And, of course, that improved greatly when we moved into the Shulin Lu because people just, they're dying to play there now. And, uh, you know, I went from being sort of hat in hand in the early years to ac- actually being in a position where I had to say no a lot of times because so many people were approaching us about about performing there. I'm I'm always um, impressed with your with your own uh, participation in the festival because you're not you know insisting on. Um, being the soloist constantly. In fact, in fact, you're you're really generously being part of a, a chamber music ensemble pretty much every time you play. Is that right? Yeah, I I did a total of three solo recitals in 22 years. Um, you know, I didn't want to use this as a vehicle just to you know aggrandize my my own musical efforts. Um, plus, I actually. Uh, I just love playing chamber music with good colleagues. But even there, I didn't want to overdo it. You know, so most most years, uh, we also grew from 16 concerts originally to 22 now uh, during the, the festival. And, you know, I thought if I played three or four times, that was more than enough. And the audience gets tired of, you know, they like variety. So um, this year, I have played four times because I wanted to say a proper farewell to the audience. A proper farewell, that's right. And um, I also wanted to ask you, though, about memories of, of musical memories of, yes. the, uh, yes. of your years. Do you, is there anything that just stands out as, like, this is the pinnacle that we got to? Oh, gosh. There have been so many pinnacles. I mean, it really is incredible, I think, to um, just sort of uh, savor the number of astonishing string quartets that are working now. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, it was Juilliard, Budapest, and Guarneri. And now we have, you know, every... Emerson, maybe. They started out when I was at Juilliard, actually, um, in the 70s. But, yeah, I mean, now it's like every town seems to have a quartet in residence that's, you know, they're all equally fantastic and also different, too. So... I mean, we've over the years we've had all the Beethoven quartets at least once, and sometimes several times. Uh, we've had all the Bartok quartets. We've done many Haydn, um, and 
you know, it really is astonishing, along with the sort of um, technical wizardry of a lot of the young violinists and pianists, soloists. And, and, you know, just to watch somebody like George Lee go from, uh, uh, you know, a really astonishing teenage pianist to now a world, he's a world player. I mean, he's He's uh, traveling with Valery Gergev in, in Russia, playing concertos. He's got a recording contract with uh, BMG. I mean, it, you know, it's great to see these, these people who are so deserving actually get what, they're work, what they've worked so hard for. Because in our field, it does not always happen. And then they return to, to Rockport. Yes. M- many, many yes. do. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and speaking of George, you know, I mean, so many of our pianists who have played at Rockport have some connection or other to my teacher, Russell Sherman, who, you know, now at 87 has, you know, he's got hundreds of great pianists uh, who have worked with him over the generations. And I've had him almost every season uh, since I've been there. And to see somebody retain that degree of seriousness well into their 80s, and not only seriousness, but, you know, just a magnificence of execution. It's just incredible. So he's a pinnacle all by himself. All by himself. Yeah. So this this um, final program that you perform is Beethoven, the Opus 1 number 1 piano trio, yes. which is kind of a beginning, a, a oh, great thing to end with. It, it's, it's the best Opus 1 there is. There's no question about it. I mean... Uh, he had written tons of pieces prior to this, but this was the first set of pieces that he uh, felt at age 25, I think, were worthy of publication. And this trio has everything, but what it does not have is Beethoven sort of storming the heavens and being, you know, his um, eroica kind of self. This is uh, light as a feather throughout. It is very funny. A lot of the piece is quite hilarious. Um, and it is also big in scope. I mean, it's over 30 minutes, um, which at that time was quite lengthy. Uh, and it's also in four movements. And uh, trios at that time were generally in three movements, at least by Haydn and Mozart. So what makes it funny? Well, let's see. In the last movement, you have a theme that that almost sounds like a hiccup. The, the, the piano has the interval of a tenth and goes, And, you know, I mean, it's clear that he was really having fun writing this and making something very scherzando. And uh, on the other hand, the, the slow movement, it's not dramatic, but it has some just very deep, pathos and you, you know it's goes right to the heart it's not quite as developed in terms of the equality of the instruments as his later trios like the archduke but the cello does have some opportunities in this work uh, unlike most of the haydn and mozart trios to really do a beautiful solo and i think you know it's piano dominant but there is a, a sort of a hint at the eventual equality that Beethoven will assign the three instruments in, in trio writing. So, and then there's Dvorak. The, yes. The, uh... Dvorak E-flat Piano Quartet, Opus 87. And my thought in doing this was to have my 
trio with Andres Cardenas and Ann Williams. This is a this is a group that's been performing for years. The whole time we've the whole, been the whole yes. twenty two years. Practically. Yes, yeah. yes. We started out in Pittsburgh um, as resident trio of Carnegie Mellon, but then became more resident in Rockport as the years went on. So. The reason I chose a piano quartet is that uh, Barry uh, Schiffman, who was my designated successor, plays both violin and viola, and I thought it would be really nice to feature him with my two favorite players uh, so that they could get to know one, one another, but also uh, choose a work that really features the viola prominently. And this piece has one magnificent solo after another. And I think I think he really appreciated that this was the piece I asked him to do. Um, so we were having a blast. Dvorak was a viola player too, wasn't he? He was, yes, yeah. as so many composers were. I guess that that makes makes it logical that he would write a good part for himself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, or it could be the opposite. If he didn't play very well, he might keep keep the parts easy. <laughs> I don't know how well he played, but he certainly knows how to write for the piano. That's for sure. So future plans, future projects for you. Are are you uh, just br- taking a big breath right now, or do you have things in mind? I, I have plenty of things in mind, but yes, I, I am sort of enjoying the cadence. I mean, this has been a, a very central uh, part of my musical activity for so long that that I'm sure that it will take a little while to adjust to having a big blank where this has been. But that's easy to fill because I have been wanting many, many more hours at the piano myself. And now I'm going to have those hours. And I have a lot of repertoire that I've never had time to learn, uh, which I'm now starting in on, and hope to uh, continue making recordings. You're still on the faculty at MIT. I That's am. Your, yeah, so you have a I will be there for the, f- for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. No, can't retire from, uh, from that. I love the daily contact with the brilliant young students and... I mean, MIT is a, a sort of a strange uh, environment for a, for a musician, but it's absolutely great. Most of my students play as well as any conservatory students, but they're all going to be, you know, astrophysicists or, or doctors or engineers, and they just uh, bring an endless curiosity about music, which, frankly, I don't always see in conservatory students. So, um, yeah, I love it there. Their minds, I guess, are being engaged in in so many different directions. Yes, and they, oh, almost to a to a person, they say that music is their their sanctuary away from all the hard number crunching and problem sets and everything else that they have going. That that for them, music is like a, a not a vacation, but it's. Um, it's an escape that gives them something really beautiful to sink their teeth into. And I think that shows how, how important the humanities and the arts are in a place like MIT because you don't want somebody to come out of such a, an institution with just a one-sided set of skills. I mean, you want people, if they're going to create new technologies, you want it to be for people to enjoy things like the arts, you know. You know, a lot of times when I'm on the road playing concerts, people will say, God, they have music at, at MIT? And that's always the first question. And I say, yes. And in fact, we have about 2,500 students involved in music in one way or another at, at, 
the institute. And then the next question is, oh, I bet they all want to do computer music. And that could not be further from the case because most of them want to leave the, the screens behind and just really engage with, with music in a very deep and hands-on way. Sit down at a piano yep. instead of a computer keyboard. Or their or violin or, or their violin. flute, yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. So um, is there any um, chamber music programming uh, ahead in your future? Nope. Are, you, are you done with it? Nope. I'm, I'm, I think I'm done. I, I'm happy to play wherever I'm asked. But um, my days of programming for other people are now complete. That's another thing. You know, I, I felt almost envious of all the programming I was doing all these years because it was so largely for other artists. And I figured before I'm below ground, I'd like to, you know, spend a lot of uh, a lot of future hours on my own piano playing. Well, David DeVoe, thank you so much for coming in and for talking, and we're really looking forward to this concert. Thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure. You can hear pianist David DeVoe in performances from last summer's Rockport Chamber Music Festival this Sunday at 7 p.m. on WCRB in concert. And one of the pieces you'll hear includes David's successor as artistic director of the festival, violist Barry Schiffman. Chris Voss had a chance to meet and talk with him. Here's their conversation. I'm Chris Voss sitting here at the beautiful Shaolin Lu Performance Center in Rockport, Massachusetts, talking with the new artistic director for Rockport Music, Barry Schiffman. Barry, thanks so much for taking a, a moment to talk with me. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for coming up. New artistic director of Rockport Music. That must uh, that must feel very good. Oh yeah, no, it's a tremendous honor. I, I you know, this is a, an opportunity that I think anybody involved in arts planning um, and in chamber music, uh, this is a really a dream job. I mean, just look what's happening now. You know, I just came up uh, from downstairs at the Shaolin Lu. It's not even ten thirty in the morning, and we have one hundred and twenty people in the hall. Um, in this current season, um, young people, older people, families taking in uh, Haydn quartets with the backdrop of, of the Cape. It doesn't get more beautiful than this, and to have the embrace of the, of the community for the arts in this town was what really made this a destination for me. You are the new artistic director, but you are not new to Rockport music. Uh, you have been with Rockport music f- since the 90s, I, I understand. Yeah, and in many ways, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the current artistic director, David DeVoe, because um, it's always been part of uh, Rockport's mission and something that David really pushed forward to support emerging artists. And in 1994, that's exactly what uh, the St. Lawrence Quartet, which was a, I was a member of, uh, were. We were emerging artists. We were literally getting our check at a gig, cashing it, paying our rent, and wondering whether we could make it to the next month. Along with that, there was also a kind of crazy energy and a really um, intense uh, commitment to the music that we were studying. And David picked up on that. He invited us to Rockport and um, not just invited us to Rockport, but allowed us to play uh, music that we really believed in. So um, Schumann Quartet or Haydn, yes, and everybody knew that. But we actually brought um, to Rockport at that point the... uh, the third string quartet of this wacky Canadian composer, R. Murray Schaefer, um, who's, you know, his, his entire artistic practice is about um, the relationship to, to nature. Um, he was a real favorite of the Grateful Dead. Um, and we brought this theatrical piece where we basically screamed and yelled and ran around the stage at these wonderful, committed audience members who were looking, who are these crazy Canadians that have... And David was just smiling and, and really gave us that... Uh, Opportunity. So I think um, 
Yes, there's been a long association with Rockport. In fact, um, I left the St. Lawrence Quartet in 2006, and I was happening um, last year to be visiting the first violinist, Jeff Nuttall, a very dear friend of mine in California. And I mentioned to him that some work I'd been doing at the BAMF Center for many years was coming to an end, and he said, oh my goodness, you've got to apply for the, for the Rockport job. I said, Rockport job? What? You, what, what Rockport where? You mean Rockport, Massachusetts? You know, he said, remember we played there in, in, in like... 94, and at that time when we played there, concerts were in the Art Association. I mean, lovely in a certain way if you don't mind the audience literally being as close to you as your next performer where your sweat is mixed with the sweat of the... I mean, it was fun, but it was not um, it was not like the dream gig. He said, no, not the Art Association. They built an unbelievable concert hall. And so I, you know, I looked it up and he said, y- you've got to do it. This is one of the great halls in the world. And when Jeff says that to me, that, you know, that comes from somebody who's played at most of the great halls. So I looked it up, and I could not believe what Rockport Music had built. I mean, they didn't just build a, a concert hall. They, they transformed this town and, and put it on the map. So I quickly got my stuff together, and I, I, I sent off a letter and, and uh, was so happy to be invited to come and interview and to actually see this space because, you know, I just finished a house renovation, and we get the, the before and after shots. Well, you should see the before and after of what Rockport Music was before the Shaolin Lu was built. And what's so nice is that it came from a very organic commitment and love at that time, really, just of classical music, and look what's possible. The Rockport Music seems to have sort of three stages, I'm, I'm going to say now. There's that, that first stage that you were talking yep. about where there were bake sales yep. and trying to get tickets, and it was sort of financially, well, what's going to happen yep. next year? Yep. And then there is 2010, the Shaolin Lu. Well, that actually, there's the David DeVoe years up, yeah, until, up until right now. now. Yeah, absolutely, 22 years. What are you looking to do with it next as you take over the reins as the Shaolin Lu Performance Center becomes this cornerstone of the music market, not only here in Massachusetts, but sort of on the coast? Um, what are your goals for Rockport as, as the next 35 years come on? Right. Well, I always look at, at the primary goal of art making is about building community and I think Rockport has a huge advantage in that they've already done that but there's lots and lots of work to do Um, so we want to just continue building on what is uh, an incredible success story but to now use uh, the Shaolin Lu and the larger organization that is Rockport Music to really give this entire area something that is lasting and that is um, significant and that is different it shouldn't just be that Rockport Music continues as it as it was doing a lovely job, just the concerts happen in a nicer space. It has to be that the Shaolin Lu is just one part of this broader um, activity that is, is Rockport music. So my role um, here is limited to the classical music world. But what is so nice about that is that the classical music activity of Rockport is really central. It's core. It's proportionately uh, large compared to other activity. And that is um, quite different than other multi-arts presenters. And in a way, um, I have a responsibility to, um, to justify and keep that commitment to uh, classical art music. And maybe classical music is a, is a terrible term because, of course, it encompasses everything from Gesualdo and Vivaldi to all of the great new music that's being written. So to crazy Canadian composers. To crazy Canadian composers, absolutely, yeah. So, no, I think we want to just, we want to build on the success. I want to introduce a huge range of artists that haven't yet played here because what happens is when when a musician comes and is inspired by the space and inspired by the audience two things that are very special here 
the art that happens on the stage changes. It's not like we practice in our practice room and we just take that product and export it to whatever hall and it's, it, it sounds the same. Musicians are living and breathing people. We walk out and if that audience is digging what is about to happen, we absolutely feel that vibe and the art changes. You add that, there's an amazing, inspiring space around you and we have the potential to actually create art here that is different and better than in other places because of the gift of incredible listeners and incredible space. It's like being given um, you know, the, the keys to the best sandbox in the world to, to, to work with. It's, it's spectacular. It sounds a little bit like you're uh, piggybacking off of what David DeVoe did for you back oh, yeah, so many years ago in 1994. Yeah, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no plans to, uh, to deconstruct and blow up what is uh, a, a very successful model. It's to build on the success that Rockport enjoys. Now, one of the, th- one of the areas um, outside of the Summer Festival is that Rockport presents classical music all year round now. So uh, one of my first uh, tasks and, and a fun one was to decide which artists are going to come and be on the main stage um, beginning in September. So what I, I've really aimed to do is have a series that is primarily focused on artists that haven't yet played here. Still, there are a couple names um, of our, our favorites, like the great uh, vocal ensemble Cantus that's coming in December, and uh, Kirill Gershtin, wonderful pianist who's, who's um, a real favorite here. But primarily, the season is about um, artists that will make their debut, if you will, at the Shaolin Lu. And some of those artists are the best new performers of our time. The recent winner of the Chopin competition, who sold out uh, Carnegie Hall last year, he's coming. But our season opens with like the legendary... Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Strangely, they haven't played here. So that will open our season. Yeah, and I think um, we go on from there. The great singer Dawn Upshaw, a very a dear friend of mine. I've been a huge admirer of, of, of her as a person and her, her artistry. Um, she's coming with uh, the legendary pianist Gilbert Kalish, and uh, they'll be in recital. So uh, I think over the course of of the fall winter, even before we even look at what will happen at the Chamber Music Festival in the summer, there'll be a huge range of, of performers and a huge range of music. Um, there's one violinist that I have been, um, I have all of her recordings, I make all of my students, if you bring me Bach to have a lesson, basically the lesson starts with, do you have the recordings of Rachel Podger? You haven't heard what Rachel does with Bach? Well, what, what do you want me to say? Go buy her recordings, get the music, and, and start by listening to what she's doing, because it's that inspired. I think she's one of the great um, Baroque violinists uh, of our time, just a, a phenomenal artist. And it happens that she is um, leading the Juilliard Ensemble 415, which is their early music orchestra. Um, so I reached out to them, and they are going to bring the entire uh, Juilliard 415 Ensemble from New York uh, with Rachel leading and perform um, uh, Telemann's Tafel music, which will I think will uh, will just you know be. A, an incredible opportunity for our listeners here and also for those young players from Juilliard to, to see this space. It's inspiring to hear you talk about Rockport and it's interesting there doesn't ever seem to be any downtime for Rockport and Rockport music. You've got the festival and then you've got the regular year. I think that is one of the things that makes one of the many things I think that makes Rockport unique. Yeah, it's it's a totally changed organization. Exactly as you say, there's no downtime. Um, there's a, you know, a small but incredibly uh, dedicated staff. Uh, there's our executive director Tony Beadle that keeps the whole thing uh, running, and it and it's become a you know as you say a full year operation with no downtime. And a lot of what Rockport does is 
outside of the uh, the spotlight. There's a, a very um, dedicated education program with concerts in schools, concerts in retirement homes, concerts in unusual spaces, um, a real uh, desire uh, for the organization to grow that. There's a jazz camp, which I'm excited to get to see. I just, I'm, it's fantastic that they're doing that in the summer. Um, so there's a lot now that, uh, that Rockport does outside of, as I say, just presenting um, the greatest artists. And I think we can continue to grow, um, grow that activity and become not just focused on presenting the best, but on the entire ecosystem, right? We can't just be the, the top dwellers. So we're investing in the, in, in the young people. We're also going to continue um, the tradition, uh, which is ongoing here, of instigating uh, the creation of new music. So being involved in commissioning, working with, with composers, and introducing our audience to, uh, um, to new sounds. It's a huge, um, as I say, a huge sandbox. I, I wish I could share with you um, already so many of the plans for next summer, but I've promised Tony that we'll keep that under wraps for the, the next few months. But it's, it's been a, a, a joy-filled project to, to start to plan that. It sounds like to you Rockport is community as much as it is a, a great musical institution. A big chunk, the heart of that community for the last 22 years has been David DeVoe. I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to talk about what he's meant to this place, what he's meant to you, and maybe has he given you any advice on 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 uh, how it's been to run this this institution? Yeah, he's been. Um, I mean, he's been incredibly important to this organization. He's been a rock, you know, and he's he's kept a very high artistic standard, which I think led to the desire to build this space. Um, if the concerts weren't that good, um, you wouldn't get the inspired giving that was necessary to to build a hall that cost, you know, close to $25 million. And David's been uh, incredibly generous to me. Uh, he sent me a very nice note when, when uh, the position was announced, and um, he's, uh, he's met with me and made it very clear that I, if there's anything that, um, any knowledge I want from him, he's willing and happy to share it. He's also, I think, consciously stepping back to not um, influence where I go artistically, but, you know, it's like uh, knowing that there's a, yeah, a life raft right there if I need it or if I'm looking for inspiration or I'm saying, you know, how did you, how did you deal with this problem? Um, he's there. And what I think um, is really fun for me this week is that uh, he's invited me to come and perform on his, uh, his final concert. And so we can just forget about planning, forget about organizational building and forget about philanthropy and donations. And, and we can just basically block all of that out and uh, this afternoon we'll spend several hours in one of the supporters homes who has a piano and we'll just get to rehearse Dvorak and that's what it's about so I'm maybe more uh, more excited about anything uh, just to make music again with David because the last time we, we played together I think was 97 um, so yeah it'll be uh, It'll be a fun weekend for that. Well, it's one of the great things about Rockport that it seems that their their artistic directors are part of the the music and have been since the beginning. Um, talk to me a little bit about this concert. It's sort of a bookends concert with you and David performing. What what are you what are you guys going to be playing? Yeah, he he um, he clearly has a love for uh, for Dvorak. You know, he presented a, a program last night uh, with his trio, Gail Williams and Andres Cardenas, and they played um, uh, the Dumki Trio of Dvorak, and then. Tomorrow evening on the final program, uh, there's, there are two works. The trio, again, is presenting, and that uh, they're doing the Beethoven uh, C, uh, 
E flat, Opus One, Number One, right? Wonderful early work of of Beethoven, and then the other work on the program is uh, Dvorak's um, Piano Quartet in E flat, um, and that's what he's asked me to join in, um, and it's just a a huge, generous thirty five minutes of music making with you know everything that one loves about Dvorak. One great melody after another. It's, it's, I don't know what the guy was eating, but it's like he puts the pen to paper and another genius melody comes and another genius. You know, it's actually interesting to have it paired with Beethoven because you can say a lot of great things about Beethoven, but he didn't spin out melodies um, with the, nearly the ease that Dvorak did. The difference with Beethoven is you can give him, you know, three notes in any order and he could build a symphony out of it. You think of Beethoven Fifth Symphony. There's you know, ba 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 It's not really a melody, uh, but it's a great symphony. And contrast that to Dvorak, who, you know, it's it's one amazing melody after another. So there's this. Um, I think it'll be quite interesting. There's also lots of folk music. Lots of um, it's, it was an incredibly happy time in Dvorak's life when he wrote that that piece, and um, and you really sense that. So I think you know it's nice that that David's chosen to uh, end 22 years on such a positive. Uh, party piece really um, and that the other players in in, in the group um, are the, the two other members of, of his trio Andres Cardenas and Gail Williams I, Andres is a, a violinist that I know well from my uh, work uh, that I, I was doing at the BAMF Center for many years and I, I used to invite him to come as a faculty member and I um, heard him perform many times and have uh, incredible respect for him. We also um, got to spend a, a couple weeks together as jury members at the Tchaikovsky competition um, in 2011. So we sat together and listened to, you know, the world's best emerging artists for eight or nine hours a day for two weeks and shared all sorts of thoughts. And, and so it's great to, to reconnect with him. It's going to be a fun, a fun concert. Well, I'm very much looking forward to hearing it. It's going to be a, a fabulous thing. And uh, also very much looking forward to seeing the future of Rockport and, and where you take it. Barry Schiffman, thank you so much for taking a moment to, to chat with me. Come back anytime. Barry Schiffman is the new artistic director of the Rockport Chamber Music Festival, and you can hear him along with his predecessor, David DeVoe, in Dvorak's Piano Quartet Number no. 2 this Sunday at 7 p.m. on WCRB in concert. And next week, you'll be able to hear that broadcast on demand at classicalwcrb.org. You can subscribe to The Answered Question at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. TAQ is also on SoundCloud and at that website, classicalwcrb.org. Thank you to Andres Nelsons, Paul Lewis, David DeVoe, and Barry Schiffman, as well as the staffs of the BSO and Rockport Music, and my colleagues Alan McClellan and Chris Voss. I'm Brian McCreeth. Thanks for listening.